Is there anything you would have done differently? We've reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Hi, I'm Chris Dyerwalt. And I'm Eliana Johnson. Welcome to Inc. Stained Wretches, where we break down what's going wrong and what's going right with the American news media. Up first on our front page, these are the stories that we thought were most important this week. Chris, I think we got to start with the coverage of Simone Biles's decision to pull out of the women's team gymnastics competition. Uh, what did we think of the coverage here? Well, I mean, I want to lay down the predicate first and foremost that the volume of coverage just taken as a quantity was absurdly large. If we were just to measure it by the pound, there was simply way too much of it. Uh, I know a lot of people like the Olympics. I know a lot of people like gymnastics, particularly within the Olympics. And I know that Simone Biles is a famous person. But you would have thought that this was like uh, Jack Ruby shooting Lee Harvey Oz. Like you would have thought that some eno- I I it, I got so many alerts on my phone. The Washington that is like the least of my problem with the coverage. The, the Washington I was very interested in it. In it. That would be like 20th on my list of things that were annoying about the coverage. At first, they she said and others started saying she dropped out because of a medical issue, which right. that is a really broad definition of a medical issue. Um, for those who may not have been following, it seems like she she had a mental block or she burned out, you know, which is too bad. But uh, so I, I objected to the use of the term medical issue, but also. There was so much praise for her decision and the media basically deciding that she made the right decision when in reality, this was a really hard thing. You know, there were reasons reasons to, uh, to drop out, one of which is she wasn't performing. She might have hurt her team. There were reasons to stick it out, which is like, you know. American athletes on the world stage, you know, they should see things through to the finish. She didn't have to enter the competition. I know she considered retiring, but she didn't have to compete. And the idea that we should all jump to praise like quitting in the middle of a competition, I sort of object to. But it's uh, it's hard and complicated, not a simple narrative the way that the I think much of the media laid it out. I noticed a lot of the use of safety language around this as part of the new... What do you mean by that? So safety culture is uh, around, do you feel safe? Do you feel well? Do you feel healthy and whatever? And talking about how because she did not feel mentally ready to compete, that she felt unsafe in so doing and that she has prioritized her health and that it is brave of her to prioritize her health and do these other things. And while that is, it is certainly so, the... Well, let's play the NBC clip real quick that I think captures that. Hit it. But first, your reaction to Simone stepping away from the all-around. The absolute right decision. You know, I think her mental health and safety always comes first, without a doubt. And this is what she has continued to do her entire career. She is setting that tone for the rest of the world. The next generation and the next generation after that, that it is most important to make sure that you're okay, that your mental health comes first. And the mental health included in the statement from USA Gymnastics. There, so there you have it. And it's the sports journalist as uh, amateur psychiatrist and the seeping in of all the mental health language and all of this stuff into it. One of the things that we're supposed to like about sports 
is that it's measurable and demonstrable. Did you do the thing? Did you not do the thing? Did you win the thing or did you lose the thing? And then when we get into layering on other metrics here about like, were you- Gold medal in self-care. Gold medal in self-care. That, I- I- exactly right. Now, as I was sneering at this, as I was like, oh, gross, give me a break. It was so overblown. Uh, and by the way, I do think it is brave to say that you don't feel up to doing something and, and to publicly stating that you're going to let your teammates down and doing it in advance. It's They're, brave to go do it, And too. it's also brave to go do it. So it's a complicated, layered thing. But as I was getting grossed out by the fawning nature of the coverage, m- much like a, a lot of things, before I could, before my point of view could fully form, hot takers of uh, from the right had so ruined the conversation that I felt like, well, I don't even... I. I don't want to be with any of you people on this. I'm taking a listen to some of what uh, they had to say on the right side of the media. I think this is Charlie Kirk, right? Peace be upon him. Charlie Kirk, you're up. We are raising a generation of weak people like Simone Biles. Again, if you want to be, if she got all these mental health problems, don't show up. She's an incredible athlete. Of course she's an incredible athlete. I'm not saying, I just said she's probably the greatest gymnast of all time. She's also very selfish, she's immature, and she is a shame to the country. So gross, right? And it's like, I guess it takes me back to the beginning, which is it's the Olympics. I don't care about the Olympics. I know other people care a lot about the Olympics, but the amount of attention and coverage on this and the way that people got so frothed over this, take a chill pill. Baseball is still available to you. It's a much more pleasant sport to watch. Yeah, both. The takes on both sides uh, were bad. I, there was a New York Times op-ed and a Washington Post piece. The New York Times praised Simone Biles for dismantling unhealthy notions of what it takes to succeed. What? And how a female champion is allowed to look. I mean, what? first of all, she's like adorable and tiny. So I don't really know what that means. But unhealthy notions of what it takes to succeed, like, I mean, she's persevered through being molested. Like, she's, I don't yeah. know. I, I well, really don't know what that means. But but the thing is, what the Russians are willing to do to succeed, I doubt that on the Russian team that they were like, do you feel unsafe? Do you feel, are you worried about your headspace? No, they, you know, send them to Siberia or whatever. They're, it's funny. The Russian athletes, like, their whole bearing is different. They're, they're you know... They just look different than the Americans. They're more serious and they don't smile as much. And because they because we're awesome yeah. and we're at, we're Americans and we are free people. And they're. Yeah. I, has no one seen Rocky four? Has no one seen Rocky four? Uh, Yvonne Drago is not the equal uh, of Rocky Balboa. The, well, but can what, we talk about the Washington Post's Candace Buckner her column on on Biles was simply being great isn't good enough because Women like Simone Biles are carrying a gender and an entire race. I mean, she's a fantastic athlete, but she's also gotten like nothing but praise and adulation from she's, the media. Uh, she has, and I to to refer back to the New York Times uh, piece about success. A lot of athletes have paid terrible, terrible prices for success. Right? What? And it is these things are mental as much as physical. Like talk to anybody who's run a marathon or done things. I like would that. not want my child to be a Olympic to be on track because my kids are at the age now where they would already be ground down. Like Katie Ledecky in the Olympics, 
I'm sure it's great. I'm also sure that she had a totally bizarre life. It's 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 like being a child actor or something. You just are taken out of your normal existence. Yeah, they don't go to like real school. Yeah, and I hate I hate this component of the Olympics uh, because uh, it's they're professional athletes now and they're basically raised in laboratories. I'm I'm joking. I'm Katie Ledecky. I'm sure was not raised in a laboratory, but it's this thing where from birth they're shaped in the in this box. To do this stuff, they pay huge prices to do this stuff. But if you want to be famous for being an athlete, you have to pay an enormously high price in order to do it. And that's the way it is. I mean, full disclosure, we'd be like the first two people to drop out if we ever had to run a marathon. I for sure would. Well, I only run when chased. And that's the I, I know that that is true. And I have I have never aspired. But if they had like a, if they had like a barbecue Olympics, I could try that. I'd be open to that. We'll see. All right, your topic is up next, media oh. coverage of the January 6th hearings. So in the long-running category, we can have a subcategory on the show from me, which will be called Never Tweet. Never, ever, ever tweet. Here is a tweet that should not have been tweeted by the New York Times Justice Department correspondent Katie Benner. Uh, as American, she said, we believe that state power should not be used to work against a political figure or a political party. But what happens if a politician seems to threaten the state, if the politicians continues to do so, and his entire party supports that threat, she said of the January 6th committee. And then the thread went on from there, and she referred to enemies of the state. And She said she also said that, that Trump's collusion with Russia and the two impeachments were unresolved. And so lawmakers could not be trusted to look into the Capitol riot. Here's the thing. I thought that the hearings themselves were staged very well. She deleted well. the tweets, we should note. She did delete the tweets, but it it is, again, an insight onto what, how does a reporter who covers the Justice Department, so you could say, an individual could say that Donald Trump himself is a threat. Okay, you could believe that. That's fine. Uh, even a reporter could say this guy, this guy poses a threat. He tried to steal one election. You know, who knows? Okay. But the idea that the whole Republican Party, everybody is ruled out on this inquest. And this is where she has something in common with like the Lincoln Project people and the Republicans for the rule of law people and all this stuff where it's like, where are you going to get Liz Cheney and where are you going to get Adam Kinzinger and where are you going to get the Ben Sasses of the world and where are you going to get the Republicans who stand up when it's hard if what you say is no Republican can participate in this and the whole party is ruled out. Uh, never tweet. Uh, never, ever, ever tweet. My next item is, I guess we have two New York Times items up in this section, but a hilarious, uh, I mean, in some ways, New York Times report on the racial disparities in learning setbacks during the pandemic. And they're reporting on a McKinsey study that found that students, that more black and Hispanic students were further behind than White students, uh, you know, lost more months of education from being home during the pandemic. And same with students who attended low income schools. They were ended the year seven months behind their typical performance in math versus four months for schools uh, where families were were more well off. There's some amazing quotes, which I'll get to. But essentially, it says that, like staying staying at home hurt black, Hispanic and poor kids more than it hurt white and rich kids. Okay, but then it doesn't mention the unions like who was driving this policy to have kids be at home learning 
and not a single mention of the unions. And then I love the quotes in the piece. Uh, This woman is quoted, Anne Ishimaru, who is an associate professor at the University of Washington College of Education. Don't send your kids there, folks. She says, quote, the problem with the learning loss narrative is it is premised on a set of racialized assumptions and focused on test scores. And she goes on to say that kids of color are presumed to be harmed by staying at home. But that is not right because they were better off because they didn't have to deal with micro and macro aggressions and other challenges they encounter in schools. That was not published Um, in a newspaper. Beyond that. Are you serious? They then uh, they then say that many children learned a lot in the past year and a half, just not reading and writing. So So what if this uh, woman I just want to stop you. (laughs) This woman said. And I, you have it here in front of me, and I can see and it And is, like, quoted as a serious, you know, some kind of expert. That this woman said that her conversations with families of color suggested some children preferred learning remotely because they did not have to deal with micro and macro aggressions and other challenges they encounter in school. Well, let me tell you something. And just for the, for the Times to quote that is like, oh, yeah, I certainly agree with you that— Well, they fell behind in read and write, reading and writing, but, like, look, we got to get the other side in here. The other perspective, and, and that the that the other, the real other side, which is placing blame at the feet of the teachers' unions, as it, as they did. look, parents are part of it, uh, but teachers' unions are 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 a part of it too, and ignoring that isn't helpful. But here's what's really not helpful about this and a lot of the coverage about racial disparities in the pandemic. You know the old joke about the New York Times headline on the last day on Earth? No. Uh, world ends, comma women, comma minorities hardest hit. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah the, exactly. The the poor people suffer more than rich people in everything. We live in a country where poor people, so rich people go to Costco, and uh, when you buy Diet Coke, uh, you can go to Costco and you can buy Diet Coke for pennies for a can. A poor person walks to a neighborhood store and buys a 22 ounce bottle for $2.35. It is bad to be poor. It's not good to be poor. And it's bad in every single component in terms of health outcomes. And we can talk about this with vaccinations. We can talk about this. Coming from a poor family with low educational attainment is a massive disadvantage, period, period, period. And I just always to be your hillbilly correspondent here, always to stick up. I I, I hate having to, to do it all the time, but I have to say, You could do the same overlay with poor white kids, too. I'm not saying that there are not special disadvantages that uh, minorities and non-white people face in the United States. But a lot of this conversation is about poverty. And a lot of this conversation is about, yes, structural racism is real. Institutional racism is real. But let's remember, if you are the child of an affluent non-white family, your outcomes are very, very close to other affluent people of other races. And that's a fact. It is a fact. And this fetishizing of race inside this construct is counterproductive to solutions. And I know it makes I know it makes the paper feel better to talk about it so much, but that's not really what we're what they should be talking about. What they should be focusing on are economic differences and societal differences leading to different outcomes. I love that they let this woman, Anne Ishimaru, take up about half the piece. So the like icing on the cake was that she argued that 
Children may not have learned reading and writing in the past year, but they learned about loss and grief, about racism and resistance, about cooking and family traditions at home. What if we were to focus on the learning found and then we rebuild our education systems from that learning? Yeah. Okay. What Uh, on earth? I mean, this woman is literally saying, like, we don't need to teach these kids reading and writing because there are other things they can know. So, I mean, it's a a take. If anybody has any questions about this, I highly recommend Caitlin Flanagan's excellent piece in the most in the Atlantic recently about how this kind of thinking has destroyed the University of California uh, system and how this attitude about testing and this whatever has has rotted the uh, UC system through to the core. And, you know, it's it's not fun to be the one who says that kids have to and I, by the way, I'm I'm the worst because I'm like math, reading, and also history and civics should all be taught with equal emphasis as as a bad person. But that's them's the breaks. Finally, on our front page, we have uh, some new revelations about Tucker Carlson's claim that the National Security Agency was monitoring his communications via a report in a publication called The Record, which I hadn't heard of before, but which has since. Uh, the report has since spread to CNN and elsewhere. And I, I looked at it when you sent me the link. I can't tell much about the record. I haven't. It seems like they are mostly normal and mostly cover Natsecki kind of stuff. I, I have no idea. But the, and they're quoting it. And it, to put a little asterisk on it, they are using anonymous sources. Yeah. yeah. So other outlets picked it up and they are quoting. Uh, let me see exactly. According to like sources familiar with this, they say that. Tucker Carlson's communications were not monitored. His name was merely mentioned in a conversation between two parties who were being monitored and that it was unmasked in that context. Unfortunately, that may be true. Unfortunately, uh, given all of the reporting that came out of the national security community via anonymous sourcing in the Trump administration, I just don't really believe any of this stuff until I see subpoenas are, are Sorry, until I see depositions or like people testifying under oath about this stuff or the documents themselves. So I feel like this is going to remain a mystery. Well, uh, it doesn't. So far, it has it has not remained a mystery that uh, I don't think anyone has tried to hurt Tucker Carlson. Well, except for that guy who yelled at him in the bait shop. We haven't seen any of the emails either. Right. So I don't know. The whole thing sounds pretty dopey to me. But, you know, the the thing about and, and you've heard me complain about it before. A lot of this NATSEC reporting is open because it's, like you say, all anonymously sourced, and it's very susceptible to a little fudgy, wudgy here and there. And I just, I, I, I think my takeaway on all this so far is it was really weird what Tucker Carlson said. Uh, <laughs> it was really weird what he said. It was weird how Fox responded to it. Uh, but as you say, the mystery. We're the, still waiting for the ocular proof. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Up next are Obsessions of the Week. We will break down the stories that we can't get out of our heads. Chris, you're up first. Now, I am fully prepared for you to hate this item. I do hate this I item. I know that I am I am fully I'm glad you came in. I know I know the, the cost of my vigilance here, but we have a scholarly paper that talks about the competition from online platforms and the impoverishment of newspapers. And a friend of mine sent me via Twitter, uh, that found the great chart via Twitter, and hopefully we'll find a way to put it in the, or in the show notes, shows the shocking degree of correlation 
between the arrival of Craigslist's entry into a local news media market and the collapse of local news coverage. And what's funny, there's a couple. Why? Well, because classified advertisements were the backbone in a lot of ways of these papers, right? So paper. Yeah, now all the like handsome, single, 72-year-old man seeks 20-year-old young woman. Those ads that used to be run like, you know, in the local newspaper, they're now on uh, what, what it, misconnections on Craigslist. Misconnections on Craigslist. But a lot of the classified advertisements, yes, were from individuals. There was a bunch of low margin ads that filled up a lot of the newspaper. And Craigslist, Craigslist was coming along with a lot of other things in the in the aughts, in the, in the, in the beginning of the 21st century. And there were other uh, pressure factors. But the two things that I would say, number one, I was working in the newspaper business when, when this was going on. Obviously, the newspaper business made the wrong choice. And they, instead of doing the right thing, which was to emphasize content and spend money on content to beat the competition, right? And they didn't apprehend what the real competition was. But instead of making the newspapers better for short-term losses in order to preserve their business, they slash newsroom spending, they cut staff, they cut local news content, uh, newsprint got more expensive. They, sh- they, they offered consumers less in hopes that they could continue to make the kind of profits that they had before. So they made a bad choice of choosing savings over content, and now content is king again, right? We went through two decades of this, and content came out the other side as king. So the the, the bad business decision, and by the way, cable news, I'm looking at you. I'm looking at you, cable news. Content is better than savings uh, in the long term. What do you mean about cable news? Like talk is they do They do talk, talk. Talk they cheap, stick like four cheap. reporters in a studio because that's easy. Right. Uh, the the budget the budget for a segment on a cable news channel with two people talking is the same as the budget for ink stained wretches, which is to say <laughs> the Lacroix the, the, yeah. La, the Lacroix that we can swipe from the American Enterprise yeah. Institute when we're recording here. So uh, it, it's once you've paid for the studio and once you've got the stuff, so what? So content. So the decision to to cut content badly hurt newspapers in the longer run as they were trying to keep up with free ads on Craigslist. The second thing that comes to mind is Craigslist is gone. I mean, it's not gone, but Craigslist is not anything like it used to be because that market space changed. And as people are talking about how to regulate the news business and how to, what are you going to do to save this kind of thing and that kind of thing, I would just say the change just keeps coming. It doesn't stop. You cannot set this at a fixed point in time. We have to sort of let the market forces work their way through here to see what's going to work. I'm in favor of allowing newspapers and news groups to band together to collectively bargain with social media outlets. I think that that's a misuse of anti trust laws to prevent them from doing it in the first place. So I think that's fine. But we're like, you never know what's going to eat your lunch and then you never know what comes next. So just let it keep rolling is what I say. My obsession of the week is the Washington Post national correspondent Felicia Sanmez's suit against the Washington Post and several of her uh, bosses, some of them still there, some of them not, but including Marty Barron, Editor of the Post. Give us a little. Who's Felicia Sanmez? Stick with me. Stick with me, guys. This does take some explanation. But Sanmez, we we put the end of the story first, which is that she's suing the Washington Post. But we got to rewind a bit. This started when 
Sanmez claims to be a sexual assault survivor. So she's she's made allegations. She's never filed criminal charges against the guy. But like Is it a basically, person at the post? No, it was, uh, I believe, somebody at the L.A. Times where she used to work. Anyhow, uh, the guy disputes what she says. There's been pieces written about it. But like basically the posture of the media is we're all supposed to believe her over him. And she's a survivor. OK. OK. Well, she, so, and she may be. I have no, maybe. I don't maybe. Know. But right. she may not be. I just like I'm not willing to take these things uh, just just because she says it because she's clearly demonstrated like she's got a few screws loose. So she was reprimanded in January of 2020 when she tweeted on the day of Kobe Bryant's tragic death in a helicopter crash, a reminder that he had been accused of rape. And Marty Baron, uh, he had been, but she didn't doesn't cover sports. And Marty Baron basically told her, yeah, don't tweet, you know, not appropriate right now. Like, shut your mouth. And she she was suspended. And then the post newsroom, she got the post newsroom up in arms protesting her suspension. Why did they suspend her? Blah, blah, blah. I mean, I actually I'm on the side of newsrooms enforcing standards when it comes to Twitter. I just think they're inconsistently enforced. But it seems like they could have just said, take that tweet down. That's dumb. Yeah, well, no matter what they do, she's up in arms. So so since then, she's uh, spent—sorry, one other thing happened. They told her that she couldn't cover matters of sexual assault, which she— protest because she claims to be a survivor of she assault. Can write, if she wants to write essays about her experience, that's fine. Right. But given her, the intensity of the feelings that she has on this, this does not sound like the right beat for her to cover. So she has spent the past several months publicly lacerating her bosses on Twitter oh for prohibiting her from covering sexual assault and for their failure to adequately support her, calling them out by name. So this is, this is a tweet from her in March. I wish the same post editor, Steven Ginsburg, she's referring to, who was quoted in this piece, supported me when I was doxxed and had to leave my home. Instead, they were silent and I was suspended. They continue to prevent me from fully doing my job by barring me from covering sexual assault, an action so harmful that I haven't been able to work for much of the past two weeks. I'm taking sick leave next week uh-huh. and have experienced a recurrence of the same debilitating symptoms that I had when I came forward about my assault three years ago. So, first of all, the idea that she is entitled to cover whatever she wants to cover. A is like totally farcical. So she editors are allowed to say you cover the White House and you cover Congress. And you know what? If you don't like it, you can leave. And it would also be inappropriate for. So she is unwell and she says she's unwell and she is obviously unwell. She is not. Things are not OK. And I, my heart is really with her because she is obviously in reading this stuff. She is unwell. I'm sorry. I mean, I wish her the best, but my heart is not with her. Well, my, so my, heart she's is with, a... my heart is with every suffering person because, uh, you know, it's it's hard. out. It, it's tough out there. And she obviously has a lot of problems. But uh, clearly she she's so but, she's but, now suing them for you, discriminating but, against her. But we have to make the, the point that they should discriminate. Editors should discriminate against people who have strong emotional against reporters who have strong emotional attachments to issues. Right. If my but even if it was arbitrary, it would still be a ridiculous complaint on her part. If it was arbitrary, it would be even so this is even less ridiculous. Right. Right. This is even a more defensible position. If if I had if if uh, my father had been uh, killed by a runaway rodeo bull, it wouldn't be right for me to cover the rodeo, right? 
I might say, I have a lot of feelings about the rodeo. I'm very upset about the rodeo, and I'm highly attached to this. And it would be correct for them to say, you're probably a little close to this one. Why don't you let you somebody— sue them. But And who <laughs> sues— over so this is literally she have they fired her fired. is she still she's there still employed there so this is this is what the lawsuit says quote as a result of defendants discriminatory conduct Sanmez has suffered and in the future will continue to suffer irreparable loss and injury including but not limited to economic loss humiliation and this embarrassment, is about the beat mental and emotional distress well she's still employed there but, uh, but deprivation her, but, of her rights to equal employment opportunities but the com- but the complaint centers on which beat she's covering Yes. And a lack of adequate support. It talks about how she developed TMJ and anxiety and received treatment from therapists and psychiatrists. I mean, girlfriend, who among us has been there? But uh, I'm not using it to sue my boss. I this is very sad. Uh, What's amazing to me, Chris, is that this has gotten a lot of coverage in the mainstream press. Politico Playbook did a whole thing on like the letter and blah, blah. And no one, not one of these mainstream people will come out and say, like, actually, the management was right here. And this woman is nuts. Like, well, not one person will come forward say, and say that. Say, you don't want to say. Uh, I don't know. She says she's nuts, basically. Oh, well, but it's not my place to say whether she's nuts or whether she's not nuts. What it is my place to say, though, is that as a, a journalist and an editor, that that reporters don't get to pick their beats and that reporters who have strong emotional attachments to subjects, especially negative attachments to subjects, should not cover those beats. And you're not entitled to, quote unquote, whatever the sort of support she was looking for from her bosses. She's not entitled to that. And if she doesn't like the amount of support she's getting there, she's free to leave and well, go that, work elsewhere. That, that, that is absolutely I'm the sure case. the dispatch is looking for people, right? The, uh, you know, I don't know. I'll have I'm to, sure there's a I'll great check, support office I'll have to at, check, at Dispatch I'll have, HQ. Uh, I'll have to check with Steve. I don't know. Uh, no look. support office at the Free Beacon. Well, you're the support office. Yes. And you say, yes. rub some dirt on it and you'll be fine. But, uh, you know, look, this I is, say you'll survive. This is a very, very sad story to me because this is obviously a person that's that is uh, lost. And that's too bad. But I I hope reporter I hope any re- uh, young reporter who's listening to this knows you get the beat that you get. And if you don't like it, you can go work someplace else. Those are the rules. Finally, this week, we come to our favorite items, which I always have to be dragged into doing kicking and screaming. But this week, I have a good one. Uh, so, Chris, do your little uh, you're, you're you're this is like not even a real favorite item. This is like, well, this is where we're supposed to say something nice. Yeah. This is okay. where we're supposed to say something nice is the is the theme of this. It's say something nice. And there's nothing nicer than I can think of that happened that I saw in journalism this week than the, the panel that I got to host here at the American Enterprise Institute with just Three of my favorite working journalists in America today, uh, Michael Powell, national correspondent for the national reporter for The New York Times, Caitlin Flanagan from The Atlantic, Thomas Chatterton William from, Williams from Harper's and the New York Review of Books and here at AEI. And we called it Surviving Post-Journalism. The great Samantha Goldstein helped uh, put it together and did a great job for us. And All right, all right. It, well, wait. No, 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 no. And here is what I think everybody can take away. I hope everybody will go find it on AEI's YouTube channel, Surviving Post-Journalism. But I was so encouraged to hear what Michael Powell had to say, especially as a reporter, about how to get started, how to get going, and how to be a good what reporter. What did he say? He said, for those of us who aren't going to click through the link, you're going to all are just to go to uh, st- uh, start that you sh- that he's how he started 
in Vermont as a local cub reporter and worked his way up and worked his way through the times, did the shoe leather reporting, did it the right way. And the coverage that he has that he has provided in the in the past year about Smith College, about the ACLU, have changed the way uh, people perceive these institutions and all of he this did stuff. Great coverage great. of Cory Booker too. Yeah, and it's just if, if you want to practically understand what's happening in the business and how to be better at it, uh, this is a this is a great thing to watch. My favorite item is this is like the kind of news that I really when I go online looking for news, this is what I want to find. It's, uh, you know, I always I always admired like the old version of the Drudge Report for being this great mix of high content, like politics and intellectual stuff and like total gossip mongering. They still it, was have just, a good... it was an amazing mix of that stuff. So the New York Post reports uh, that Matt Lauer with lots of pictures, guys. Disgraced Matt Lauer relists $44 million Hamptons home after years without luck. But we get so many pictures of this ridiculous house. Is it is it trashy nice? Is it no, nice, it's, nice, it's nice, nice? Like uh, you would, if you had $44 million, this is what it? I, I mean, if I had $44 million, I wouldn't buy a $44 million house. Okay, but, if you had yes. $400 million. If I, if I were as rich a pervert and a rapist as Matt Lauer, I would totally be buying this house and not selling it. It has, okay, two guest houses have been completely renovated and also come with a built-in tea house, which what is a tea house? I guess like a pagoda, like a, yeah. a pergola. I don't know. The entire property is gated for optimal privacy and security. 60-foot heated waterfront pool, rolling lawns, flowering gardens, specimen trees, an outdoor fireplace pavilion, a gym, a basketball court, and room for tennis. So if you guys want to go to New York to the New York Post and see how life is not fair, I suggest that you go through these pictures. Well, I'll tell you it's one thing. Amazing. And he can't sell the thing. I'll tell you one thing. I don't care how rich he is. I still wouldn't want to trade places with him, regardless of uh, how true. many specimen trees he's got. I, and then I, I love, so this house is in the Hamptons. It says Lauer still owns a 25-acre Sag Harbor country estate. Uh, so, you know, also in the Hamptons. Sag Harbor's in the Hamptons, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's a that's the whitest. So they're like it, uh, two I, Hamptons houses, but I think there's a third, too. Yeah, yeah. So his ex-wife is keeping their 47-and-a-half-acre horse farm in Watermill. So that's like uh, incredible. up the Hudson. Like So he's got three places in the Hamptons and a lot of equity let me, real estate. Let me, t- let, me tell, let me tell you people something. These television networks make these monsters. They pay them tens of millions. They give them all of this money. And then they're surprised when they're monsters. You can't treat these people like this and expect them to be normal because you'll, you'll find out what freaks they are indeed. That is the news about the news. If you have a story you want us to talk about, email us at wretches at nebulouspodcast.com. That's wretches at nebulouspodcast.com. This has been Angstain Wretches from Nebulous Media. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Wretches. Wretches.